G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. I've got the exercise in, and I know that you've got a bit in because we had a hit of tennis on the weekend. Absolutely. I, I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up, Dad, because as I'm embarrassed to say in uh, this public forum, you got it done against me on the weekend, Dad. I had a shocker. Well, look, it might be about the last opportunity I ever get, so if I get a chance to press an advantage, I will, because I know that one day when it turns around the other way, that's probably it, so I took my chances. Oh, yeah, no, nah, uh, I'd, I'd forcibly repress that memory, I must admit, my uh, serving was no good, but uh, no, very well done, and, and we'll push on with the podcast today, I can park our rivalry for the moment, and maybe look, today's episode's going to come in maybe a little bit uh, more handy for me than for you after that result, because we've called today's episode Reflecting on Failure as Feedback. So, Dad, do you want to just give us a, a bit of a brief overview? What are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well, one of the more common kind of difficulties that people have when they seek psychological help is concerns about failure. Perceptions of having failed, feeling not matching up in some way, feeling that there's pressure or stress on to try and achieve goals in a certain way. Some of our previous podcasts have looked at things like goal setting or motivation. So it's this notion that we might want to achieve certain kind of goals, but it's not always going to turn out that way. We might have a goal that doesn't come off the way that we want, or we might be disappointed by our performance. How we deal with notions of success as opposed to failure and how we perceive that, that's a pretty significant thing in terms of our mental health. Well, absolutely. And and look, I'll this was my, my turn to choose an episode topic for today, Dad. And, and look, this is actually something I found quite interesting for a little while. And I reckon the first time that this notion kind of first crystallised for me was actually when I was looking at some stats about the footy, Dad. And so as you, as you know, for the last few years, I've done the Geelong Cats podcast. And one of the things I do in preparation for that podcast is basically just prepare... I suppose, ammunition, for lack of a better term, for the presenters. So I'll just give them, you know, a couple of stats, a couple of maybe potential talking points, and then on the day they can go through and pick and choose from that, you know, basically what they want to talk about in the podcast. And it's always stuck out to me as something that I found quite bizarre and interesting that it doesn't get more talk. And that's that when you look at the clangers in the AFL, which is a stat for... A mistake, basically. It's a stat for a poor disposal that ends up with the opposition. Essentially an unforced error would almost be a tennis analogy. And the players that have the most clangers are the ones that are recognised as the best in the competition. But when we're speaking about those elite midfielders, it really gets brought up how often they make clangers. Like, you know, Dusty Martin, for example, is one of the better kicks in the AFL, but he's regularly right up the top of the clangers list every year, which would seem a mistake on the surface. But what that suggests to me is that with the people who succeed the most... It's not about whether they fail, it's about how they fail. They clearly have a way of picking themselves up and, and I suppose moving on with it and not dwelling on the fact that they've failed and putting themselves in a position to take the opportunity the next time that it comes around, even though at that time they might be a little bit discouraged by their previous effort. Yes, very interesting parallels there between sport and everyday life. Like a lot of achievement in everyday life is showing up 
having a go at something, having different goals, being prepared to strive. If we don't have those goals or some sense of direction or putting effort into channeling our energy in some way, we're not likely to achieve much. But it is actually quite remarkable what happens in the sporting world, as you're saying. The results are there for all to see. There are extra challenges that many people would face in that public kind of arena, and sports people have to deal with that. But just in our everyday life, there's that notion of looking to achieve a goal. How do we go with that? What if it doesn't match up? How do we respond to that? And yes, very interesting parallels that you're describing there with some champions in the sporting field. They've got particular ways, don't they, of responding after a clangor. Well, absolutely. And the one that comes to mind for me the most, I suppose, is that classic Michael Jordan quote where he said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and I've missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life and that is why I succeed. And I think it's a, it's a, a fascinating notion, but at the same time, Dad, on the surface, it's not as easy as it would seem to just, I suppose, accept our failures and, and move on. Like Clearly, there's something within those elite sports people which is pretty special to be able to do that, but... At the same time, what I'm interested in talking with you about today is maybe getting to the bottom of how we can maybe look at failure a little bit differently to maybe help us move on and get to the next opportunity and be able to attack the next opportunity with the same amount of energy. I think that's going to be something that, yeah, it'll be really great to talk to you about today. Yes, and a whole lot about how we respond to a notion of failure is about our perceptions whether we perceive ourselves as falling too far short of a goal or mucking up or not being what we should or thinking we should have done something differently, but also that perception of Michael Jordan. I'm sure that many people, if they were asked how Michael Jordan went at throwing the ball into a basketball hoop, they would have thought he would have been way ahead of other people and made far fewer errors than most. We can have this perception of other people as achieving in certain kind of ways and by contrast us not, or we can be overly selective in focusing on our own relative failures, if you like, or disappointments. A lot of it is about perception. And so when we look at success versus failure, part of it is not just attitudes to it, but whether we look to be a little bit objective also in how we appraise it. And I think it's something as well, like I've, I've seen it a little bit, I suppose, in what almost, almost term is hustle culture. In terms of, you know, Dad, again, as you'd know, sort of, for the last few years, basically been, been running my own business sort of thing, as well as working with you guys, but creating podcasts for people. And so, obviously, trying to learn a little bit about being a, a business owner and getting the most out of yourself and all this sort of stuff. And, and there is a real, I suppose, culture amongst I hesitate to use the term entrepreneurs because I reckon it's such a loaded term these days, Dad. But I think there is this hustle culture where they use terms like, for example, fail fast and fail often and document don't create. And it's it's kind of got this notion behind it about, well, you can go two ways about it. You can sit there and go, well, what's the perfect way to go about this and almost curate every fine minor detail before you do something or you can just get it out there and you can refine it over time and you know you can make changes along the way and you can fix up little things here and there but what this 
maybe culture and, and this subgroup of people have gotten onto is the notion that, well, if you're getting yourself out there, if you're not dwelling on your failures, if you're actually doing and, and putting your skills into practice and you're able to get over every quote-unquote failure that you have, well, you're putting yourself in a position to succeed more often because you're not going to be necessarily stuck at that stage of just dwelling on your failure and feeling bad about it and thinking, oh, no, I'm, you know, I've not done well enough here. The emphasis seems to be on, well, what can you do to make the next opportunity, to show up the next time that you're required to? Yes, so in the long run, a lot of it's about goal-directed effort, isn't it? And then we've got more chance of drawing on skills, developing skills, getting into a sense of flow if we're putting energy in a certain direction. But one of the things I find interesting about the notion of mistakes too, our attitude to mistakes, I remember there were some psychological studies that looked at people's approach. Some people would be more careful at first thinking about how they go about addressing a problem or managing a task and there'd be other people who would do it quicker and they'd look at picking up by trial and error and interestingly often these two groups of people end up achieving about the same amount if people spend a lot of time planning and putting care into something trying not to make too many mistakes which I would say that would have been certainly my initial personality bent I think many psychologists would have that kind of approach as well would rather, in a sense, be careful, plan, not make too many mistakes. But then I was really interested to hear that if people had much more of a trial and error approach, then there might be more mistakes, but people are also getting some things done quicker and then learning from those mistakes and then adapting and ending up in about the same spot. So I think partly there also are personality types that can come into that, but I think an underlying notion is to not get too hung up about the notion of mistakes or slip-ups or clangers. And that's one thing I've found that's been, if you like, easier about life experience and getting older. Just by necessity of time, you're going to be making more mistakes in different kind of ways. But you find different ways that also you learn from them, can benefit from that. And that's certainly something that comes up in the therapy setting. Well, very much so, Dad. And I'd, I'd relate to that as well. Like when you were speaking there, the... I suppose notion and the, and the quote that really came to mind that I would have resonated with for years and years and it's almost that thing of as I get a little bit older I, I'll probably learn to not relate to it quite as much but it's that Abraham Lincoln quote where he says give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening the axe like I think you know there's a balance to be had with these things I reckon I've probably gone a little bit too far in that direction and in many ways that's probably what part of today's episode is a little bit about is recognizing that too that I maybe started a little bit too far in that direction and have gotten a lot of benefit out of maybe putting myself out there a little bit more and, and accepting those little failures that come along the way but dad one question I have about this because what immediately comes to mind is, hold on, you know, we can, we can talk about all this in specific terms, but it's really hard. Like the term a failure to me is just one of the strongest, most pointed term that we can call someone. So there is this notion that failing when it's a, you know, attached to our identity, it's such a, a negative thing. But how common is it that people seek help for dealing with either a specific failure or a broad perception of failure. So whether they've failed over something that they've done or whether they see themselves as a, a failure more broadly overall. Okay, well, the notion of failure or perceiving oneself as a failure or having failed, that's certainly a very common issue that comes up in therapy, but it often comes up indirectly. 
it often comes up in the background when people are depressed. So the number one personality factor that contributes to depression is probably perfectionism. So this idea of setting the bar very high, measuring ourselves against very exacting standards. And one example would be a fellow I saw many years ago who was quite severely depressed. He was an insurance salesman and he said that he'd sold, this was many, many years ago, and he'd sold over a million dollars worth of business. And back in the 1980s, that was an enormous amount of money. He was one of the early clients that I saw. And I said, well, that actually sounds like that's achieving a fair bit in your line of work. He said, yes, but this year I might have sold $1.1 million of insurance. Last year I sold $1 million of insurance. That's 10% ahead, but actually that doesn't keep up with inflation this year. And my father told me that if you aren't making progress each year, then you're going backwards. So that led him to feel like he was a fa- he was perceiving himself as having failed in that year when objectively he was doing quite fine relative to other people in the same work as him but because he was using that measuring stick of you meant to you're objectively meant to be improving every year on that particular measure he perceived it as failure he was actually quite depressed and as you can imagine he had quite exacting standards in a number of other areas and he needed to look at that notion that we sometimes refer to as unrelenting standards or perfectionism as the black and white nature of it that's sometimes how it presents with depression but it also presents in other ways that I'll describe shortly as well in terms of procrastinating or burnout it comes up in other ways under achievement but people rarely front up and say oh my main issue is failure but it's in the background with a number of these things including depression well this is I think a big aspect of this is a topic but what that suggests is that the frame or the narrative that we put on something is so important and I think this is actually such a central point of this topic that I reckon we might talk about it a little bit more next week, Dad, because one of the other, I suppose, motivations for doing this episode is came across an article of people who had, you know, quote-unquote, failed in life and then basically succeeded late. And it's people like, you know, Oprah Winfrey and J.K. Rowling and Sir Isaac Newton, Colonel Sanders. Like, there's so many famous people throughout history who many people would have had the perception that they failed, but clearly they were able to frame it in a way, to look at it in a way where, for them, it wasn't just an abject failure. Well, yes, they're quite remarkable examples of people who've achieved, so I'll be interested to hear more about that next week. Well, you mentioned a little bit before there, Dad, but what are some of the examples that that, say, fear of failure or the perception of failure shows up? Okay, another one would be burnout. Now, that's one of the more common problems that people seek help for, and it's often when people, again, have unrelenting standards and they're really pushing themselves. One example I can think of is many years ago, a CEO of a large public organisation was quite burnt out and depressed as a result, anxiety problems, sleep problems as a result of this, but it was in the early days when email came out. As you know, I've been working for quite a period of time, so that sounds historical these (laughs) days, but uh, I'd been even working for a number of years before I saw this person. Well, anyway, email came out, and he had an expectation on himself as a CEO to respond to all the emails. Well, it didn't take long before he was getting hundreds of emails in a day. So he felt he was getting behind the whole time because he wasn't well keeping up with all of these emails, and he described to me, he said, each day I go to work, It's like going over the trenches. 
he had like a war metaphor. He was just getting absolutely worn out and frazzled. And I suppose in those days there wasn't the experience that many people had to talk at different strategies about dealing with emails or what expectations there would be. He was a very conscientious person. He was a very competent person. But because of that very exacting standard, I should respond to all of these emails, he was actually on a hiding to nothing. There was no way he was going to keep on top of that task. And so he was just getting really weighed under with it. And also, I suppose, another aspect of unrelenting standards that maybe is a little bit more common with men than women as well, but certainly a number of people expect themselves to be dealing with this difficulty. Don't maybe acknowledge to someone else, hey, I'm struggling with this, you know, looking to share a problem around. That can be another aspect of unrelenting standards. If the person thinks, oh, I should be sorting this all out within my own head or within my own life, and if I don't, then I'm a kind of failure because I think that might have been one of the issues if someone was maybe more ready to acknowledge their struggles earlier with other people, they might have come up with a solution earlier. So you touched on it a little bit there, but why is it that some people perceive failure to be such a negative? Like, why is it that, for example, Michael Jordan can look at 9,000 shots that he's missed and just, you know, almost at the click of the fingers move on, whereas for other people, and I'd almost maybe perceive myself a little bit in this category, Dad, you know, if you fail at something that you set out to do, you sort of think to yourself, oh, you know, what, what am I doing here, like... I've bloody set out to do that in the first place and it just hasn't come off how I want and you can get stuck into yourself a little bit. So what is the difference between the way that some people look at failure? Well, it's going to be partly our acculturation that's going to happen in the culture more broadly and certainly some environments and settings can be dare I say, encouraging more of a competitive spirit than others would be one thing. A lot of it would come down to also family culture and issues General societal attitudes are important, but in a family probably especially so, like was a parent, for example, or parents particularly critical? Or at times did they maybe not care so much about someone's achievements so they didn't get a handle on the notion of striving or the notion of success or failure? Sometimes people would have found themselves in more competitive environments, for example, with siblings, wonder if they measure up that way or also with peers in school or sporting settings, but it's partly the attitudes around us. And then there are also the subjective experiences that we have. For example, someone could go through a very challenging situation and depending on their attitudes of what they expected of themselves and those people around them will make a difference from past experience, whether people feel that they have some kind of history of failure or not measuring up. So it's partly the culture around us. It's partly the influences on us. That certainly includes family. It certainly includes education and schools. And it certainly involves our peer groups as well and it seems a big part of that potentially is the narratives that we then tell ourselves from that for example if we had someone criticizing us for something when we were young potentially we had the experience of growing up and regularly telling ourselves or being told that we were you know a failure for something around that like what you were describing there it seemed to me that a lot of those examples related to people's formative experiences in a way and it strikes me that that could be a really tough issue because if someone has gone through that maybe in early childhood and, and while they were growing up, they're going to have their ways of thinking and their, their structure of thought that might relate to some of that criticism that occurred early on. Like, What can people do to boost our resilience 
and not see failure as such a bad thing if we are in that situation where we might have some of those narratives that are related to failure? Well, I think in the first instance, one of the most helpful things that we can do is to reflect on our childhood experiences and attitudes about our approach to various tasks. It might have been especially, say, on school tasks or where there was some kind of challenge or demand that we faced. It could have been in sport, if we were learning a sport or part of a team for many years. How do we go about dealing with challenges? How did we deal with challenges as a child? Did we apply ourselves and make a real effort? Did we look to persist and follow through? Did we look to maybe develop our skills, show some patience and perseverance, of trying that or did we tend to at times give up a little bit easily or did we get down on ourselves if we slipped up in some ways if we did have clangers as you describe or if we didn't achieve what we wanted to in a particular setting so we can reflect on those patterns in childhood and it's worth reflecting on also on how our parents might have responded what level of encouragement or expectations there might have been or disappointment expressed either overtly or even maybe imagined like looking at how our parents, others around us would have responded, how our peers would have responded. And actually what helps as well is picking up, were there ways that we tended to avoid some kind of challenging situations? Because that's where failure can come up as well, or issues around failure. For example, when people are procrastinating. If people have a habit of procrastinating, it's usually from excessive expectations on oneself. We mightn't think of it as being like perfectionism because the person's not getting as much done. However, if the person puts harsh standards on themselves, it'll be really uncomfortable to start trying a task. Oh, if I start doing this or working on this project, it might not turn out the way I want. It might fail. So the person can even unconsciously be putting it off. And there also can be patterns of underachievement the person can look back and think, wait a minute, maybe if I tried a bit harder, I could have been in this sporting team or I could have actually learnt that foreign language which I was interested in or I could have played a musical instrument in that band as I was invited to. But hey, I tended to shy away from that in some ways. Looking at how we responded to opportunities and challenges that way and if we pick up patterns of either harsh expectations on ourselves so we got really stressed and at risk of being burnt out from trying so hard or just anxious and frustrated around exams, for example, much of the time. Or if we got down on ourselves, if we didn't do something so well, or if we avoided taking on certain kind of challenges, then those kind of behaviours suggest attitudes around fears of failure and maybe rigid expectations of failure, maybe all or nothing kind of thoughts about failure. Either I'm a success or I'm not. Black and white thoughts. Either I do it 100% well or it's not worth doing at all. So I think if we reflect on our childhood history of how we've managed things that way and then think of maybe experiences after school, it might be in a first job, it might be at university, and then also more recent times, how do we go about challenges that we have? That will give us clues to our attitudes around success versus failure. And the other thing that really comes to mind for me there is recognising that 
As you say, there are maybe some styles of thinking that can get us into traps a little bit, but at the same time, I think there is benefit to all approaches on some level. Like, for example, Dad, you know, I'll I'll happily put my hand up, say, you know, maybe a little bit more in the past, but a massive perfectionist in, you know, different ways. And it's, you know, it's led to some distress at times when I just think, you know, this is just not good enough. And, you know, it's, it's tough to sort of deal with those things. But at the same time, like, I trust myself to do something almost, you know, more than anyone in the sense obviously recognising there's a whole range of other people who have more skills in a certain area. But if I need something done, I know that I can sort of trust myself to do that. But I think where the the real value in that comes from, it's recognising that, yeah, there's some benefits to that. But it's also what you said about picking up on some of the patterns that are there too. Like for me, for example, it's recognising that, well, yeah, there's maybe some good things to that, but... I personally need a little bit more balance of the just get stuff out there and don't worry if it's, you know, quite as good as you want it to be and then sort of just deal with that a little bit later on. Like, I think once you identify those patterns within yourself, you can then almost look at it and go, you know what, that actually is a benefit to me and although there are certain things about that that I would go, yeah, maybe I need to temper that aspect of it, maybe I need to temper some of the rigid thinking behind it, but at the same time, you know, it's not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, you can still look at it and say, oh, you know, this has led to me having high expectations and having, for example, conscientiousness or caring a lot about the output that I have. Like these are these are positive notions that can come from maybe an unhelpful thinking style. So I think that's a, another point to make is that it's not worth just completely well looking at it as a failure if you do maybe recognize some of that thinking. I, I think there is something to be gained from going, well, maybe there are some elements of this that are getting in my way. But at the same time, I also recognize there are some benefits for me too in the way that I've gone about it. Yes, it's tricky to get a balance, isn't it? Because what we're looking at is, say, conscientiousness. There's a lot that's good about conscientiousness. So that's striving to achieve goals, isn't it? And if we do strive, we're more likely to achieve our particular goal or experience success at a particular goal. Well, a lot of that is going to have advantages. Now, the notion of generally success versus failure, if you like, at a working task or a career or different things that we're working on, if we succeed in something, they're likely to be external rewards. Just take work settings, for example, if things turn out better rather than worse, then there'll tend to be more autonomy we have, we'll tend to have more opportunities, we'll tend to be developing our skills more. I find this with my colleagues at work. A number of psychologists, especially when they come out of university, are very conscientious and often say to people, hey, look, I'm just wondering, you seem to be putting a lot of pressure on yourself and I just sort of you know, wonder if that's fair to expect yourself to you know, be handling this situation that way or something on those lines. But basically what I'm also saying to people is, hey, but that's music to my ears. Because when people are as conscientious as you are, generally people are very reliable, they care a lot about what they're looking to do. Often people develop their skills very well and keep on developing more sophistication in their field. So there's a balance with these kind of things. When people strive and are conscientious, there's a lot of good that can come out of that. And that's also personality types. If people have obsessive compulsive tendencies, people are more likely to feel anxious in situations where there's some pressure, but they're also more likely to be conscientious and reliable at performing a task. So I think to some extent, 
we can also take a bit of the good with the bad. But I think like you're suggesting, it's also important to look to get a balance or temper that. If we know that we tend to look to be over-conscientious or we are at risk of getting more burnt out or we feel down on ourselves if we haven't achieved a situation as well as we'd like, then they're all clues that it's worth winding it back a bit, tempering our expectations of ourselves, being a little bit more flexible in our thinking, not as harsh. And so it seems to me that notion of balance is going to be a a big part of it. But what I wonder then is like, for example, what are some aspects of a successful person's attitude towards failure? If we can can use that term, you know, I'd I'd hesitate to think that anyone's a success in, you know, every aspect of their life across the board, Dad. But if we were to think of the hypothetical successful person, how would they respond to failure? Okay, now there are a number of phrases that sometimes come to mind with this and so they're almost at risk of being cliches these days but I think that they're very helpful overall. One is the notion of learn to fail or fail to learn. Now that comes from Tal Ben-Shahar who wrote a wonderful book called The Pursuit of Perfect. That's a very good book for people if they believe they are dealing with perfectionism and Tal Ben-Shahar was an Israeli squash champion And then he realised that he wasn't getting so much joy in life because he had such harsh expectations of himself. And then he became a wonderful presenter in the positive psychology field. In fact, he was such a flawless presenter, I thought, hey, wait a minute, he seems just as conscientious in some ways as he ever was to be as flawless as that. (laughs) But he had tempered his approach and he called it optimalism rather than perfectionism. He's saying, you still strive... You still look to do what's optimal, but optimal's not perfect. Sometimes that's aiming to do something like 80 or 90% well. That'll be more than well enough to achieve more than enough of what you want, and you don't have to get too harsh on yourself for the rest. But I, I did think it was quite amusing how flawlessly he continued to present, and so that would be part of his nature that was also, well, one of his strengths, but certainly learn to fail rather than fail to learn. And the other thing I would highlight is what we call a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. A fixed mindset is black and white thinking. I attempted this task, it was a success or a failure. We could even say that with a football team. A number of football teams are finishing this year, the Australian rules football season, and people could look back and think it was a failure because we weren't in the finals. But yes, have these teams learnt something and grown and developed? So you could say the year was a success in terms of their development. That would be a growth mindset. We don't want to be kidding ourselves. If people have performed well below expectations, then that's not something to maybe make excuses for because people who deal with success versus failure well still will take responsibility for things maybe not going as well as they might have wished. But it's with this growth mindset. So in other words, what can we learn from slip-ups or where we've fallen short of expectations? Is it that we could, for example, develop further skills or did we need other kind of resources or do we need to put in more effort or preparation? Should we have been more organised in some ways? So that's part of a growth mindset. We still look to learn from a situation. We're not just saying, oh, look, failure doesn't matter. Oh, I'm going to feel okay about that because I won't get down on myself. No, we're still looking to challenge ourselves to a degree so that even can be some healthy striving, if you like, in how we process our experience of failure, but we don't have to damn ourselves for it. 
And I think that's such a, a good example with Tal Ben Shahar because, like, for example, if you're looking to temper something within yourself, it doesn't mean that you lose it. Like, he openly was someone who, who dealt with perfectionism a lot, although I'm sure he would have got on top of that in his own way in a whole range of ways, maybe compared to, you know, Joe Bloggs on the street. He's potentially got some perfectionistic elements which led to, you know, the conscientiousness which created that presentation. So uh, what strikes me from that is that, you know, it's not as if you can necessarily switch off who you are even if you are trying to temper a particular aspect of yourself. Yes, I think that's an important point. And again, I'd use the expression, take the good with the bad. We can recognise that some aspects of our personality or how we go about things might be a little bit out of balance. However, if there's a natural bent to over-conscientiousness, hey, well, look, there's a benefit. Just wind it back a bit and you're left with mere conscientiousness. But it is worth looking to redress the imbalance because otherwise people are going to be more prone to depression, more prone to burnout, and then more prone to avoidance of situations that might challenge us that way because we might be concerned about putting ourselves more on the line if we're over-invested, if you like, in our achievements. So again, I like the Mark Twain quote which I believe is at the MCG when the teams run out on grand final day. One of the quotes I believe they'll see in a change room is from Mark Twain saying, treat success and failure as twin imposters. I think what a wonderful, elegant expression for a growth mindset. Yeah, right. Was that Mark Twain or Rudyard Kipling from IV? That was... Uh Triumph and disaster. Treat those two imposters just the same. Oh, there you go. There's a clangor <laughs> of mine, and I'm glad that you've brought it up. But look, you've actually had a lead in for another story. This is a bit of a non sequitur, but it's also how notions of success versus failure can come up in a therapy session. And Rudyard Kipling is relevant in this way. One of the ways that people can have problems with success versus failure is in relation to performance anxiety. And as you can imagine, one of the ways that that might manifest is sexual performance anxiety. So many years ago, I saw a fellow who presented for help with erectile dysfunction. And I just mentioned generally, when people look for help with sexual problems, often it is some kind of concern about performance in some way. But anyway, he explained to me that, look, I can only get it up about three times in one night. And I'd have to say it was about the quickest therapy intervention I'd ever offered. All I could think of was a line from Rudyard Kipling. So all I could say was, you're a better man than I am, Gungadin. <laughs> and, well, he kind of chuckled as well and he didn't seem to be so bothered after that. But look, I'll just mention that. That's a classic example of how it's our perception of a situation that sometimes leads to whether we see ourselves as having a problem or failing or not measuring up, so to speak, as opposed to the reality. And I suspect that sometimes we don't know where our expectations come from. It doesn't mean that there was something literally that might lead someone to have that expectation on themselves or whether they just form some kind of vague impression. But it's our underlying expectations or perception of a situation that's going to determine our reaction to it. Well, I suppose just to uh, just to steer the boat back onto course here, Dad. Sorry, I did get a bit distracted, <laughs> yeah, but it yeah. was quite an example. And you did mention Rudyard Kipling. I think that might be the first, let's call it a urology reference, that's come up in the podcast. So it's a nice milestone to tick off. But as I as I say, get back on course. I'll try to. There was a 
There was a point that I had before because it was a it was a good point that you were making, and it was about the acceptance of failure. Because the way that you were describing some of those aspects of, of maybe a hypothetical successful person's attitudes towards failure, like a big part of that seemed to be the acceptance of failure as maybe a part of life, as maybe a part of developing, of getting better. And uh, really comes to me this line that I once heard at a, at a conference actually, but it was talking about someone in the context of, you know, put yourself out there. Don't get hung up on failure and get hung up on things not going as well as you want. Just make sure the next time's better. And he had this line where he said, people don't remember where you've come from. They remember where you are. And it was in the context of, for example, if you're, say, building a YouTube channel and your first 10 videos are rubbish, or like, Dad, we look back at this podcast. When this podcast started, I'd, I'd struggle to listen back to those first few episodes now, I reckon, because we probably, you know, had, had much less of an idea of, you know, what we wanted it to be and, and how we wanted to go about it than we do now. And it's not as if people, for example, listening to this episode of the podcast, obviously you can go back and listen to older episodes, but it's not as if people are still perceiving us by who maybe we were in those first couple of episodes. Like the fact that we've developed since then, it's not as if people are going, oh, but yeah, where were you six months ago? And I think that's a similar thing with, I think, you know, or maybe putting yourself out there in a media sense like that's that's probably what I know about and sort of the context I came across it in like I think it's very relevant there but it's probably relevant beyond that too in terms of you know if we fail at something you know it could be a huge failure no one's going to really remember that in you know say two to five years time so I think if we can look at it at a way of well let's register that Let's register that as something that happened and maybe there's a message in that. Maybe there's some feedback for me about how I went about it. But it's not about seeing it just as an abject failure and then dwelling on that and then getting stuck in that frame of mind. It seems that people who are able to put themselves out there time and time again do have this notion of, well, well, this is who I am now and I'm developing and I'm going to get better and the only way to get better is to keep going about it. Yes, I think one of the main things that comes up there from what you're saying is not to over-identify with success or failure, not to measure our worth or think we're better or worse as a person according to our performance. So there's that notion that we can have a distorted perception of our performance, we can have unrealistic expectations, we can overly focus on the negative and ignore the positive of what we've done in a particular situation with black and white thinking. But where we can really get stuck is if we think, look, this represents me as a person, my worth as a person is out there. And that's where I like the notion that Lazarus came up with this notion of big I and little I. He said when people are performing in a particular situation, rather than getting your ego into it, like you're giving a talk, for example, realise that you giving a talk, that's something you're doing. It's just one role that you have at the time. You as a person isn't just you as a speaker. You as a person, you're also maybe a a son, a father, a brother, a friend, um, someone who plays uh, tennis or uh, a painter or a cook or how well you run or whether you're helpful to other people. There's all sorts of different roles and aspects that we have in our life, millions of different aspects of our life. So whenever we're doing something in particular, like, for example, giving a talk, he said, it's a little I that did that. 
rather than the big I, me as a person, my whole worth as a person is invested in what I'm doing here, it's the notion of there are a lot of little eyes, little roles that we have in different parts of life. And part of a fulfilling life is to have a range of these little eyes and some that we also invest in, that we get particular enjoyment from, drawing on our skills, drawing on our relationships, drawing on our interests, but having this range of roles, this range of tasks and activities, we don't have to get hung up on anything in particular. So that emphasis more on engaging in different tasks and roles that are worthwhile, that are meaningful in life, it's more about being involved, it's more about living, being engaged in things, being able to be in a sense of flow with different things that we're doing. That's a lot more about where there's going to be some kind of meaning or value in life rather than trying to judge ourselves according to our performance. Well, I reckon it might even be helpful to to drill down on that a little bit more in terms of what are some of the good aspects of failure? Because it strikes me that if we just look at failure as something completely negative and we just get stuck into ourselves and down on ourselves, we can miss out on a whole lot in terms of maybe messages about how we've gone about something, maybe areas that we can improve. What are some of the good aspects of failure? Okay, well, look, a couple of things come to mind, and one of the classic ones is Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb. The way that he put it is rather than failing 10,000 times to invent a light globe, he found 10,000 ways that it didn't work. (laughs) So that's a wonderful example of looking at feedback. But look, I will mention a personal example now because... My main and deepest sense of failure as a person is when I was depressed after having worked as a psychologist for 10 years. I described this in the past on this podcast as well, but I thought, wait a minute, here I am. I'm not only depressed, but severely depressed. I was hospitalised twice over a period of a month, and I thought that my career might be washed up, but I was certainly perceiving myself as a failure for having got so severely depressed in the first place, despite the fact that there were massive stresses and lots of major hospital conflict and all sorts of things I won't go into, but major stresses I was facing. But in recovering from that depression, it's some of the most useful learning I'd undertaken in my life because I realised, well, if I'd reached that stage of just not functioning so well at all, despite thinking I could be a reasonably resourceful person, clearly there were things that I needed to learn. And so I did have to step back from that situation. And there are a number of things I realised I needed to do differently. And one of the number one things was address perfectionism. And fortunately, I saw someone who greatly helped me understand more about that issue and get more of a handle on it, but also learnt that I needed to be more assertive in certain conflict situations, that I needed to be more ready to draw on other kind of supports rather than expecting myself to deal with all sorts of situations first and foremost, to manage with that and come up with ways of solving problems myself, I was forced to draw on other supports in a different kind of way and that had a profound impact for me to find how much support there was available and how little judgement when I opened myself up to other people and allowed myself to be more vulnerable and drew on their support. I realised that other people weren't judging me from having been severely depressed, whatever I thought of that myself at first, that was a massive learning. Forevermore, I've learnt about being able to draw on the support from other people. And the other thing, quite frankly, is that led me to leave what in those days was quite a sick hospital system, the way it was working, some of the competitiveness that happened in that kind of system, some of the lack of supports in certain kind of areas, and 
to me, I thought, well, I'm going to go in a different direction where I would have more support, but also more autonomy in different ways. And then that led to many worthwhile opportunities that came after that. So when I think in my own life of some of the things that turned out best for me, quite frankly, a lot of them stemmed from having gone through that period of severe depression, the learning from it, and being able to have a more integrated approach to drawing from the support of loved ones around me rather than expecting myself to figure it all out myself. Well, I think that's a really interesting example because, you know, like uh, similarly, when I look back now, I think some of my most formative experiences in some ways have been failures because, you know, you have that kind of pang of emotion, you think, I don't want to do that again. And so that compels you to sort of do something about it to not find yourself in that situation. But I find it so interesting, for example, when we look ahead to the future, we so rarely account for potential failures that are going to happen in terms of, you know, you think, oh, I'll do this and I'll aim towards this and I'll aim towards that. But then when we look back at our past, some of these failures are some of the most important experiences that we've had, yet we don't seem to connect those two notions in terms of going, well, if I look towards the future, I'm probably going to have a few failures here and there and then they're probably going to compel me to you know, really motivate myself to move in a different direction. Like, I just find it interesting that there is that disconnect that when we look back, similarly to the way that you speak about that experience and how formative it was for you as a therapist and the way that it's informed your attitudes towards different things, we don't seem to connect the benefits that came from that with looking forward and thinking, well, you know what, if I can just put myself in a position to accept the failures that come and, and meet the next target even after that failure, it seems to me that's a, a more realistic way in some ways of thinking about the way that things are going to go. Yes, and actually it reminds me of another thing as well, the notion of appreciating the experience of stuckness. Like we'd often think of being stuck as being a negative thing. But there is this wonderful book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And part of the theme in that book was being stuck can be a productive or creative state if we have a way of being with the stuckness, if you like, and not getting too worked up or upset about it, and then seeing what comes afterwards. Because when we're stuck, we tend to then eventually get a little bit creative and start to come up with some alternatives or some problem-solving solutions maybe. So when we think of some of the best achievements we've had in terms of new ideas or going in a different direction or problem-solving, often it will have started with being stuck. And so that's got a little bit of an overlap also with going through the experience of perceived failure. We might not have had the answers at the time, but we can look back and learn and find a different path forward that might work well for us. Well, I really like that saying, privation creates progress in terms of if we're deprived of something, well, we're more likely to go, oh, I need to change this and, and motivate ourselves to do it. But one question I have, Dad, because it's something that, that strikes me about this topic, which can be quite hard in terms of the balance between how much to reflect on our failures and look back and think, you know, I could have done this better or if I was to be in this situation again, this is how I'd do it differently. What's the balance between reflecting on that constructively and not wanting to just dwell on the fact that we have failed at something? Okay, well, in the first instance, I think what helps is to look to step back from a situation where we have perceived failures. And I suppose one thing is think, well, how important is it 
like it might be a very minor thing, in which case it's not a matter of getting too bothered about it, that idea of don't sweat the small stuff. But if it's something significant that we think we maybe slipped up with or could have done better, then I think the next thing to check is, is our view of it, is our appraisal of how we've gone about things somewhat realistic or maybe a little bit distorted? It might even be helpful to check with a friend or a colleague or a family member or a confidant about that to look to get a bit of a perspective on it. But just say if we step back and we think, no, that was a significant slip up or I let myself down in that way or this was a very unfortunate consequence that came. I didn't achieve what I wanted to set out to do here. Now, in that situation, if it's something significant and if we think maybe we have slipped up in some way, That's a time when it's worth being a bit honest with ourselves. And people who respond to failure or the issue of success versus failure well are still going to be honest with themselves and acknowledging if something didn't go as well as they would have wanted. So we can look at, well, is it that I didn't prepare as well or is it that I lacked certain skills or was there something about my attitude or approach that didn't work so well? Or was it maybe the setting or the timing didn't work so well? Was it that I didn't have the resources in that kind of situation? Could I have asked for more help in a certain kind of way? Now, if we look back in a, dare I say, hard-nosed way, or an honest way at least, and reflect on what didn't work so well, especially if there's a pattern, like if we've got a pattern of procrastination, or if we've got a pattern of underachievement, it's worth doing something about that. Actually, I'll give one brief clinical example, a story of a fellow I saw many years ago who started to have some breakthroughs after he recognised a deep pattern in his behaviour. One day he came in, someone who had difficulty maintaining any work for any period of time, and he said, I think I have a fear of success. I was interested in that because we talked in terms of a fear of failure, but he framed it differently. He said, I think I have a fear of success. I asked, what do you mean? I would have thought, well, most people are going to think success is a good thing. And he said, well, look, I'm looking back over my experiences and some of the jobs that I had. I had this job in a chemical factory, and after a while, I was promoted. It was only just after I was promoted that I developed an allergy to the chemicals in that factory. I had to leave the job. So I'm promoted. I'm a supervisor now. I had to leave the job. And he said, then there was another job. And he said, I got promoted in this other job. I forgot what that one was. But you needed good vision for this other job, unaided, not needing glasses or spectacles. Well, he said that after he got a promotion in this other job, then he developed a problem with his vision. It was assessed by an optometrist. But then after that, he was going to need glasses. So he had to leave that particular job again just after he got a promotion. And he started to put two and two together with this pattern and recognised that really what it was is it was an avoidance strategy on his part. His body was colluding with him through an allergy, through this change in his eyes. He couldn't continue in these roles. In a way, it was a kind of avoidance of not having to take the responsibility of that next step for a promotion. And that shows how unconsciously People can be affected. And he said, it's like I'm a pilot of a plane and there's someone out the back stuffing with the rudders. 
It's like I feel I'm just not in control with what I'm doing. But once he recognised that, he could gradually take on little tasks a little bit more which involved a bit more responsibility in some ways. And he still struggled for quite a period of time with drug addiction, different kind of problems. But he looked to be honest with himself about that basic kind of pattern and he recognised a pattern of sabotage, of self-sabotage. That can come up in more subtle ways. Like people, for example, might forego a job promotion or they might not apply for something that they're ready for, or they might take on jobs that are maybe more lowly than they could achieve, not really appreciating their qualifications or skills. There's subtle ways that people can avoid being in positions of responsibility. So if it's something important, and if we realise that objectively maybe we are slipping up in some way, maybe underachieving, procrastinating, then it's worth addressing that. Can we be more organised? Can we develop skills in a certain way? Can we take more responsibility? But if it's something more minor or if we realise that we've got a more distorted or exaggerated view of being a bit harsh on ourselves, that's when we can step back and wind it back, dial it back, the self-criticism. And very often, many people in their everyday life will find that that's more commonly the pattern. It's being a bit harsh with oneself and maybe we could give ourselves a bit of a break, get off our own back, dial down the criticism. I heard a quote once from a fellow, Glenn Carlson, who I know you know, Dad, but he basically said that stress in his business comes down to an asset deficiency, he called it. So in terms of he's got a situation that he's finding stressful, well, he thinks about it in terms of, well, what's a system that I can put in place to mitigate against that happening in the future? And I think that's a, it's a great notion on so many levels. It probably doesn't work every single time. There's probably some things that are just going to cause you stress anyway. But I think it's a good almost frame to look at things at in terms of, well, is there an asset that I can create for myself, whether it be a system of doing things or a process to go about it that's going to mitigate against some of that in the future? Like there's just going to be some situations that you're not going to be able to. And I think in those situations, that is where maybe tempering expectations a little bit comes in. And... Like I found it absolutely fascinating to hear recently, Dad, that scratch golfers, so golfers who literally don't have a handicap, only break even about four times or five times a year. You'd think, you know, scratch golfers, like you'd think that they'd average, you know, better than zero. But the way that the handicap works is that, you know, things like, for example, course difficulty come into effect. So you could get a two over on the course and because that's a difficult course quote unquote it gets broken down all this sort of stuff like the way that the handicap system works is is quite nuanced in a way yet I love golf and I didn't know that until I really looked into it you just have this sense of of scratch golfers being the ones who are able to shoot an even score every time in terms of their score over par so I think in that situation when maybe we're not able to say create a process or a system for ourselves it is worth maybe reflecting on our expectations and I always think of that that kind of good frame to put things in of you know would you would you expect a friend or you know would you expect a family member or someone that you care about to perform that way in that situation and so often I think when you you really drill down on that people kind of go oh you, you know what it probably would be a little bit unfair to expect someone to perform at that same level of output without any mistakes or without any perception of failure at all. So I think it's a good thing to consider. Yes, so a couple of key things that come up here, the notion of self-talk. How do we talk to ourselves around our approach to a task and achieving and striving 
And how much do we encourage ourselves versus criticise? And so whenever we look at something like this, if something is important to us and we're striving, one of the key things we might say is it's worth having a degree of self-compassion. And as we've described in a previous podcast, that means treating yourself as you would treat a close friend. So what language do we use? The notion of encouraging ourselves for our effort. Appreciate our efforts. Recognise our efforts. Because that's showing up. That's putting ourselves on the stage, so to speak. That's putting ourselves forward. If we are going to acknowledge our efforts, and we're going to look to learn from our experience. That's the growth mindset. And so we wouldn't say to a friend who's really having a go at something but it hasn't gone quite well, oh, that's a bit pathetic or you should have done better than that or oh, not again, you haven't screwed up again, have you? Many people find it a lot easier to get stuck into themselves than using that kind of language with a friend. So it's just noticing the way we talk to ourselves, encouraging ourselves makes a big difference. We talked about that on a previous podcast about, say, panic and facing fears as well. If people are going to face fears, that's a real challenge. It's really important to talk to ourselves in an encouraging kind of way. That reinforces our efforts. Otherwise, if we get stuck into ourselves, disappointed, it's really hard to keep on going. That's also with striving with any goal. Well, absolutely. And and I think that's a, a great point to finish on, Dad, because... You know, I think one of the things that that struck me about this idea of, say, hustle culture that I was talking about at the start of the podcast, of basically people looking at their output and thinking, you know, how can I be absolutely the most productive that I can? Well, one practice that a lot of people do is, for example, daily gratitude and daily affirmations. So they're recognising that they're putting themselves in a position where they're going to fail often. They're potentially going to criticise themselves for the way that they've gone about something, but so many of these exact same people, for example, will have a practice where they wake up and they might have a gratitude journal where they write three things that they're grateful for for that day. They might write a daily affirmation in terms of, I'm worthy of success. And to me, that practice of writing in that journal, writing those affirmations, deliberately having that positive self-talk with you, like to me, part of that is to mitigate against some of the maybe heat of failing all the time and maybe the heat of critical self-talk. Like if we make the effort at the start and maybe the end of every day to have those more positive conversations with ourselves, then that's going to help us to not get stuck in just maybe dwelling on some of the failures or, or the things that we need to refine or the elements that we need to get better. Yes, and I'll just mention there one adjustment to what you're suggesting that can also help for some people. Some people are going to find it hard to draw up that positivity from themselves, to have, for example, an affirmation at the start of the day. Some people, especially if they have been very self-critical, can find it hard to believe something positive about themselves, like I can really do this, something on those lines. Now, if people find that, if people listening recognise that they've been quite self-critical and it's been difficult to muster up, that kind of confidence or assurance, one of the best things you can do is look to at least write a list of about half a dozen skills or achievements that you've had. For example, you might say you're creative at particular tasks. You might say you have a lot of knowledge in a certain area. You might say you're kind because people have often said that to you. If they're things that you know about yourself about achievements or skills that you have, 
sometimes just writing that down, especially if you know they're 100% true, or a number of people have said that to you before and you're quite confident of that. And I would even include for some people, if you're not sure where to start, maybe even doing the signature character strengths questionnaire, which identifies certain kind of attributes people have. For example, it might be courage or creativity or persistence or something along those lines. If we start off with something that we basically know about ourselves as a strength, that can have a bolstering element and that can make it then easier for us to talk positively about ourselves. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Dad, especially look, especially about the character strengths, to be honest, because I, I remember one time when I was feeling quite depressed and, and did the character strengths test, and I remember looking at it going, hold on, like, this is this might have been correct two years ago or this might have been correct six months ago or, you know, maybe, you know, that would have been me in the past, but I didn't necessarily resonate with it at that time. But then I actually thought about it and I thought, hold on, I've just answered this test so it's not as if it's remembered that, you know, I'm the same person who answered it two years ago sort of thing. And the other thing was a lot of the aspects of that came up similarly to what had come up in the test the previous time that I'd done it when I, I wasn't necessarily feeling depressed at all. So it was an interesting context almost just to to kind of re-centre myself in a way to kind of go, hold on, you know, you're thinking about yourself in all these terms. But at the same time, like all these things came up and... You know, you would have said maybe yourself two years ago, but that's probably, you know, recognition that, you know, they're deep down there for you now sort of thing. So for me, anyway, doing that test at a time when I actually was, you know, unable to really see the strengths in myself, like that was such a, a beneficial thing to do, I think. Yes, and so that's one of the things that comes up in therapy. Sometimes people say, oh, look, those characteristics might have applied to me before, but I don't see that now. And then usually as a therapist, you know the person well enough to use a few examples to back that up what has come out to be their top strengths when they've done that questionnaire again. But I suppose, just as a final thing I'll mention, sometimes it can also help to draw on that feedback from other people. If we're feeling at a little bit of a low ebb, or if we're struggling to think of what kind of skills or strengths that we have, to talk with a trusted other that we believe will give us some honest feedback, albeit favourable or encouraging kind of feedback, but if we can get affirmation, from other people but there's also that affirmation from that character strengths test in itself that adds a little bit of objectivity but if also we can draw on some of that feedback from other people that can give us some extra encouragement and maybe make it easier for us to put ourselves out there and have a go at certain kind of goals well absolutely and well thanks for chatting with me about all this today dad i've really enjoyed this this conversation and i'll tell you what it makes me want to uh, go shoot some hoops i reckon and look i, I must admit after what was a, a rather traumatic loss at a game of tennis, I'm going to have to think back at it now and look at it as not a failure. I'd had six months off. My serving was rusty as an old gate. And I, I, the fact that I got out there and, you know, had a hit with you and, you know, I've, I've given you all this encouragement that clearly you've, you know, got back into your tennis and all this sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm feeling good about myself after that now, Dad. So thank you. Well, I'm glad to hear that, but I did appreciate it. I put out the call because I was doing double faults just about every second serve, and so after we had that hit the next day, I didn't do any double faults for a while, so that was pretty unusual. So um, I appreciated that. Uh, you helped me get over that hurdle. 